Chapter Five of the Story of a Modern Woman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Seanad Vaughan. The Story of a Modern Woman by Ella Hepworth Dixon. Chapter Five. Mary's Lover. Mr. Vincent Hemming was looked upon by the professor, by Jimmy, by the servants, and indeed by everyone except Mary herself, as her especial property. He was, in fact, one of the few intimate visitors who came when he liked to the Harley Street house. He had become part of her grown-up life, having first appeared about a year after that Sunday night parting, when the world had seemed very empty indeed. His little air of deference was eminently attractive to a young girl, who fancied that she had done forever with emotion. As for Jimmy, he adored Vincent, though Jimmy generally adored new acquaintances, for the space of about six weeks. Hemming's father had been a politician of some note who had twice held office, and Vincent had preeminently the manners of one burdened with state secrets. His little reserves, a certain air of caution, of discretion, all belonged to those early experiences when his father was alive. To be sure, he had charming, rather old-fashioned manners, affected the speech of the mid-century, and was carried away by few of the modern crazes or fads. A well-shaped forehead, of the showily intellectual type, wavy hair, already threaded with grey, a short pointed beard, and the eyes of an innocent, penetrating brown, made up a personality which appealed at once to dowagers and young girls. At table he looked very well, although his shoulders were inclined to slope slightly, but when he stood up you saw that he had not the eminently British habit of planting himself firmly, squarely, and self-assertively on his feet. For the rest, he had a small property which brought him in about three hundred a year and, though already grey, was still spoken of by his elders as a promising young man. Though a conservative, he believed in the higher education, even the enfranchisement of women. It was a subject on which he was persuasively eloquent. It was quite pretty, ladies always thought, to hear him talk of his dreams, his sacrifices, and an occasional article which he succeeded in getting inserted on his favourite subject in the fortnightly of the contemporary was laboriously written in studied English and with a persuasive pen. He had a great deal to say on the future of the race, and on the necessity of maintaining a high ethical standard, and he always waxed exceedingly wroth over the literary excesses of M. M. Zola and de Goncourt, and thanked heaven, so to speak, that these eminent pioneers of realism did not belong to the Anglo-Saxon family. "'We are passing,' he announced one day, when he was calling on Lady Jane Ives, "'through one of the reconstructive periods of the world's history. Art, under such conditions, is necessarily tentative.' rarely complete. Yes, said Alison dryly, and building, you see, always makes a mess. The smoking lime, the dirty puddles, the unpleasant odour of baking bricks are inevitable. But Lady Jane, who had knocked about the most depraved society in Europe for half a century, and who clung with amiable tenacity to her illusions, always agreed with Mr. Hemming. Lady Jane, who was a judge of such things, said that he was one of the few modern young men whom she could endure in her drawing-room for more than twenty minutes. A day or two after Alison's visit, Mr. Vincent Hemming appeared, looking charmingly correct and sympathetic, in a black-and-white spotted tie and a band round his hat. He had gauged to a nicety his degree of intimacy with the great man who was gone. It was a day when outlines were clearly cut and colours glaring. Everything looked crisp, hard, decided, inevitable. The rooms wore the unsettled, desolate look of a house that is soon to be empty. One or two favourite pictures had already been lifted down from off the wall, 
leaving a patch of queen paper visible. One bookcase was already a dark void. The volumes were piled on the floor, ready to be packed. Most of the library was to be sold, and Mary now stood on a ladder, running a regretful eye along the next case of beloved volumes, when Vincent Hemming came in. "'My poor child,' he said, in his sympathetic voice, "'why wouldn't you let me see you before?' "'I've been very busy,' said Mary, getting down from the ladder and putting out a dusty hand. "'There was so much to do. Father's lawyer has been here constantly, and everybody has been very kind. I had to think of everything, you see, of Jimmy and all that.' "'What are you going to do?' he asked, after a little pause, during which his eye had travelled round the dismantled walls and the cavernous shelves of the once cosy drawing-room. "'Of course, we can't stay in this big house,' she explained. "'I've taken some lodgings in Bulstrade Street, near the Central London School of Art.' "'By yourself, my dear child?' "'I suppose so, for the present,' she answered, knocking two volumes together in a determined manner to get the dust from the edges. Her mouth had got those little obstinate tucks at the corners now, which he knew so well. "'Aunt Julia, mother's sister, you know, has written offering me a home. She is very high church and lives at Bournemouth, in one of those dreadful little gabled villas. And, of course, you prefer an artistic life in London.' He was relieved, distinctly relieved, when Mary announced her intention of adopting art as a profession. Painting, especially in watercolours, he considered an eminently ladylike occupation. It was indeed associated in his imagination with certain drawings of Welsh mountains and torrents, executed by his mother with the prim technique of the forties, which now adorned his chambers in the temple. "'That's so brave, and so like you,' said Vincent, as his eye wandered round the room again. The tone of his voice was vague. He was evidently considering something which took up all his attention. "'It isn't brave at all,' she said simply. "'It's an absolute physical necessity. I should go mad if I sat down to think.' It all seemed so cruel, so terrible, so unjust. He was only fifty-three, and there was so much work for him still to do. He used to say that an ordinary long life could not suffice. The death of Professor Earle is a national disaster, replied Vincent, and is not to be gauged all at once. There was a long silence, during which all that this loss meant to each of these two people passed through their minds. They had moved to the window now, through which a light breeze fluttered in. The tall, brownish-grey houses were spruced up for the season with clean blinds and boxes of daisies and spiraea. A couple of blonde girls in pink cotton made a gay splash of colour against the grey-toned streets as they walked buoyantly along. A hansom was drawing up at the pale green door yonder, and out of it sprang a young man in a glossy hat, a gardenia, and patent leather boots. Just opposite, some workmen were stretching a red-and-white awning for an evening party. The outward aspect of affairs was unchanged. "'I feel,' said Mary, gazing at the striped awning, which the men had now succeeded in propping, "'as if I had done with that world for always. And now I want to do something, to live. Oh, Mr. Hemming,' she added, with one of her comic little frowns, "'I don't want to be a young lady. Do you really think that, because I am a woman, I must sit by and fold my hands and wait?' "'You are very modern in one thing, dear child. You have the modern craze for work.' It probably saves some of us from the madhouse. Ah, but you will marry one of these days, and then where will your work be? replied Vincent, smiling a little fatuously. Mary turned from the windows abruptly. Let us go carefully over the books, she said, with a brusqueness which she sometimes affected. Help me to choose. She continued, mounting the steps and beginning to hand down the volumes. I want that lamb, and the hind, the goth, and the Jean-Paul Richter. Here, catch the Fido, and put it with the Marcus Aurelius and that little Epictetus over there on the cabinet. 
my poor child you will no doubt require such consolation as the philosophers can afford said vincent hemming in his old-fashioned way here's pippa's passes and musset's proverbs and my special shelley and the anatomy of melancholy yes yes all those some colour had come into the girl's cheeks as she sat on the top of the ladder and dropped the brooks into his arms covering him as she did so with a light cloud of dust but she looked pathetically delicate in her close-fitting sombre gown which threw up the pallor of her throat the mauvish tinge of her lips the dark rings round her eyes vincent hemming whatever he had meant to do when he entered the dismantled drawing-room was fairly carried away by the spectacle of mary's childish face and busy nervous hands rearranging her destiny in her own decided fashion it touched him and at the same time irritated him producing the feeling that as a man he was bound to interfere one step nearer now and the course of a lifetime would be changed mary dear child he said suddenly in an imploring tone while they were both startled by the emotion in his voice do you think you could care for me a little the girl turned to look at him his penetrating brown eyes were actually suffused with tears a nerve was ticking visibly in his forehead it all seemed far off improbable impossible vincent hemming her old friend had turned into this imploring visibly suffering man mary burst into a hysterical little laugh but you you don't care for me do you you're only saying that because you think i'm lonely that i want someone to take care of me aren't you she asked hurriedly why we've known each other so long she added seeing that he was still silent he had flipped the dust from his face and coat with easy tact and stood smiling up at her close by her side i don't know continued the girl doubtfully slowly twisting one of the buttons of his frock coat she had come down several steps of the ladder so that her eyes were no level with his the nerve no longer ticked in his forehead the muscles of his mouth relaxed there was already something of triumph in his look don't smile dear she said very gravely i can't bear you to look at me like that do you really want me dear heart i have always wanted you said a changed thick voice in her ear and in the next instant two arms encircled her and two lips were crushed against hers for the first minute a consciousness of sorrow overwhelmed her for good for evil the girl knew that she was giving herself up to this man whom a minute ago she had looked upon with the cool eye and discriminating judgment of mere friendship all the tragic potentialities of a woman's life the uncertainties and sorrows of her who gives her happiness into another's keeping flashed before her why why must it be only a minute ago and she had been ready to face the world alone to be herself to express herself to work out her own destiny and now it was all changed something held her against her will this man a minute ago her friend and now in this infinitesimal atom of time her lover who stood before her with red flushed face and looked with longing eyes into hers this man had already communicated his trouble to her his hands which held her two wrists as they stood there gazing at each other felt like winks of iron in that one supreme moment mary earl tasted for the first time in all its intensity the helplessness of women the inborn feeling of subjection to a stronger will inherited through generations of submissive feminine intelligences i can't oh i can't she said don't ask me now you don't you can't understand how i feel and i don't know you like that i've always thought of you as a friend she protested drawing herself away with her fine smile besides it's dreadful to be love-making when father i don't ask you to think of it just now my darling said vincent i i the fact is i have much to do and many plans ahead myself i i haven't the right to tie you indefinitely mary i am thinking seriously of taking that trip to india and australia of which i told you 
you're going away she asked blankly already the inexorable chain which nature forges bound her to this man yes to collect materials for my book on the woman question i might come home by way of canada and if so the thing would take me the best part of a year then when i come home i shall have my book to do and i hope if the present government keeps in to get a legal appointment so you see little one you will have ample time to think about it as well as to perfect your artistic studies he added with a touch of his old-fashioned manner he was sitting down on the sofa now and looked already his quiet well-bred rather deferential self again an hour later vincent got up reluctantly to go i have to dine with a member of the government at a quarter to eight he explained my new article must be finished before i start and i'm thinking of starting quite soon are you said mary sorrowfully turning to the window and gazing down the street it was all so different now she belonged to this man who was going away why had he spoken could it not be as it was a few yards off a piano organ was rattling out a cheap german vowels the sun was off the houses now and the street wore its familiar dingy look vincent searched among the disarranged furniture and piles of books for his hat mary followed him to the door she wanted to say something nice but she could think of nothing just at parting he took her in his arms again and brushed her downcast lids with his lips during that embrace she thought of nothing except that she was sure that she had always cared for him dear he muttered i'm afraid that if i go away i shall leave the best part of myself with you when he had gone she stooped about again among the rows of books sorting them mechanically without thinking much what she was doing little clouds of dust rose in the twilight room the tall grim houses shut out all that remained of a daffodil tinted sky tired and unstrung the girl threw herself onto the sofa where she and vincent hemming had sat and presently to her surprise she was conscious that two large salt tears were coursing their way down her dusty cheeks End of chapter five